the Rural Health Voice, Episode 39, Oral Health. Welcome to the Rural Health Voice. I am Beth O'Connor, your host. We discuss rural health issues at the grassroots level and how state and federal policies play out in our local communities. What are some of the needs for dental health in rural areas? Sarah Raskin, Assistant Professor at the L. Douglas Wilder School of Government and Public Affairs at VCU and member of the iCubed Oral Health Corps, joined me to discuss dental sealants and other oral health needs. Welcome, Sarah. Thanks so much for having me, Beth. I'm a big fan of your podcast, and now I'm very excited to join you as a guest. Yay! So let's do a a little bit of background for you first. Um, You're the Assistant Professor of the L. Douglas Wilder School of Government and Public Affairs at VCU. What is that entity? (laughs) Yes. So the Wilder School at VCU is a school of government and public affairs. And so we have a couple of programs, uh, some conventional programs, um, like, for example, our urban and regional studies and planning. Um, We have a uh, a doctoral program in um, public administration. Um, I am appointed there through a mechanism called the I-Cubed Oral Health Corps. And the iCubed initiative, which is actually run out of the office of the provost, um, is a um, approach to hiring uh, around thematic areas, thematic research areas. And so I am on the oral health core, and that means that I um, was brought in to collaborate with interdisciplinary colleagues to study uh, oral health disparities and um, and and oral health equity um, focused in particular on Richmond but also across the Commonwealth um, and so I collaborate with colleagues on the dental campus, in the School of Medicine, in the Department of Psychology, some colleagues in social work, and we collaborate on on applied research projects to drive oral health equity in the Commonwealth and beyond. Um, And so I'm actually appointed at the level of the school instead of in a program, which might just be kind of a nerdy distinction that is meaningful um, for for people in distinct programs, but I actually wind up teaching and mentoring across a couple of different programs in the school. Um, And I think that my position in the Wilder School uniquely places me to study what really is my great passion, which is um, dental safety net policy and practice. So you're really looking at oral health from a a cross-sector viewpoint you know I, we talk a lot of in you know various meetings and stuff about needing to to break out of our silos and not just look at what's right in front of us to reach out to other partners it sounds like you're really doing that um yes i i aspire to and i try to <laughs> through my projects um so certainly one of the i would say um historic ways of thinking about oral health that we are trying to address we and many other oral health colleagues in in the commonwealth and across the country um is really kind of shifting from a model in which we think only about dental care as this kind of um uh, well-boundaried domain of, of oral health to thinking more expansively about oral health from um, a range of different approaches ranging from um, community-level prevention efforts. So that is water fluoridation, for example, which is a topic that is very important right now to the Virginia Health Catalyst, which is one of my um, partners that I collaborate with frequently, all the way through things like um, some different community-based services. So those are services that can be provided in community settings by different members of dental teams. And then all the way through, of course, what we think of as conventional dental care. So that is both um, the assessment, you know, the standard assessment of any dental needs that individuals have, and then also treatment of those of those needs. Mm-hmm. Now, in preparation for this interview, I was trying to remember how long you and I have known each other. It's been, I don't know, 10, 12 years now. <laughs> I can't remember. But, you know, as, as long as I've known you, you've always had 
an interest in oral health in Appalachia. What's, what's fired that passion? Oh, Beth, that is such a rewarding question to be asked. Thank you for asking me that. Um, yeah, so when I began my doctoral studies as a medical anthropologist um, at University of Arizona, I had previously been a public health practitioner. And so I had worked both in community services and then at the CDC, um, initially around HIV prevention education, and then I moved into intimate partner violence um, and both prevention and services. And when I was at Arizona, I was, I was honestly feeling a little burned out from those topics. They are topics that can have a lot of secondary trauma associated with them. And so my extraordinary mentor, Dr. Susan Shaw, and, and my other extraordinary mentor, Dr. Mark Nichter, said, you know, instead of um, continuing to kind of push on these topics that are really feeling very heavy, why don't you consider um, maybe identifying another topic to study? And a good way to do that is to go to the field site where you'd like to be doing, you know, field research, and just ask around, like, what do people care about? And so that was in 2008. I um, flew from Tucson to probably DC and then drove to Blacksburg is my guess. And you were one of the first people I met with. And I said, and I think, you know, I think that you were relatively new in your, in your position. And I was like, you know, what's on people's minds around here? What are some understudied research topics. And so I met with you. I met with uh, Sue Cantrell in Lenawisco. I met with um, with John Dreisner. Uh, and, and you know, I, I met with a whole, but I just did like a, a driving tour of Southwest Virginia, um, Western North Carolina, um, you know, Eastern Tennessee, back up to West Virginia, where I had been um, raised uh, in Bluefield. And I just kind of surveyed people on their um, topics of interest. And when I say survey, I, I mean, it was like casual conversations with everyone from health department directors to like anyone who would talk to me at a gas station. It was just asking questions. And a couple major topics popped up, which you would expect. So of course, opioids, this was 2008. That came up as a topic. Um, cancer care came up as a topic. Prenatal care, um, diabetes and comorbid, you know, obesity, diabetes and comorbid conditions. And then um, oral health came up. And the kind of major pitch was from John Dreisner. And he said, listen, I know you're used to working on these like sexy topics like HIV, intimate partner violence, and that oral health sounds maybe kind of mundane by comparison. But it is so important. It is so important. And people don't know it's so important. And not enough people study it. And so you can contribute to the research literature and also to practice. And if you work on this topic and you find it boring or not compelling or whatever, he's like, fine, fine, you'll do your dissertation. You'll go running back to HIV. But if you find any meaning in this topic, it would be so important to work on it. And I was like, okay. And so, um, you know, I went back to my university, put together a couple of grants to support field work. And I should also say that it just so happened totally randomly that when I visited the region, it was a RAM weekend. And so I actually was like on the campus. Um, well, not even the campus. I was at the fairgrounds at WISE uh, with, you know, Teresa and Paula and the health wagon, um, it, you know, for RAM in 2008. And I think that I even drove with them to pick up uh, Stan and everybody. And so we've kept in touch ever since. Um, and so uh, this is all a very long way of saying that John kind of opened the initial door to me. And then I was hooked and convinced that I, I joke that I'm an oral health equity evangelist, but I, I really am. And that has resulted in some very long and meaningful examinations of the various ways that we can use policy and dental safety net practice to drive oral health equity. And I'm, I'm so pleased to see that there have been some improvements made in Virginia over time. Right. So thinking about one specific aspect of oral health, you've been looking into dental sealants. 
What are dental sealants? (laughs) So dental sealants are these thin plastic sheaths that are placed or kind of painted, depending on the type, um, over primarily chewing surfaces. They can be applied to other surfaces of teeth, but really they um, are put on the chewing surfaces of our molars and our premolars, um, usually permanent teeth, although they can also go on uh, primary teeth as well, to help protect those surfaces. So one of the reasons that we get cavities on those surfaces in particular is because, and, and I hate to like gross out your audience for anyone who's a little squeamish, but I'm, so please cut me off if I'm grossing you out. Um, but you know, what happens when we eat or drink um, anything other than like, you know, water um, that is, that is neutral is the, the tiny, tiny, tiny bits of food and sugars from different beverages, even healthful beverages like, you know, milk or, or even, you know, um, you know, for nursing children, breast milk, although this is, you know, previous to getting dental sealants, you know, they remain in our mouths and they tend to do a really good job hiding in those kind of um, cratered areas, those kind of dips in our teeth that we use for chewing. And then they rest there and the um, different um, components of our oral microbiome that cause cavities. So this is a streptococcus uh, mutans and, and lactobacillus. These are different microorganisms that kind of then come along and for lack of a better, well, actually they those microorganisms actually eat the remainder of the food. So it's, I hate to say it, but they metabolize those things. Again, it sounds kind of icky, but it's just what happens. And then they produce an acidic kind of um, product. We can think of it almost like off-gassing. And that is really what creates the carious lesions, the the pre-cavities on our teeth that then eventually become cavities. And so dental sealants provide protection against those because they provide a smooth, a smoother protected surface so that we can more easily um, get rid of, and they provide a barrier between those remaining food particles and also a more efficient way for us to brush, for um, example, or when we, you know, drink something like water, which is a neutralizing beverage after we eat, we can more easily kind of um, flush out those remaining food particles so they don't provide the um, the uh, fuel for for caries causing, for cavity causing um, microorganisms to to digest them and take hold. So they're essentially a little plastic film. Is this something that has to be reapplied like every year or is it a one-time deal or how does that work? So they tend to have a life of quite a few years. I I don't recall the actual longest they last, but typically they are applied to children as soon as their permanent molars start coming in. And so the idea is that, um, you know, if you can give them to kids really in that age where they are... (laughs) You know, they're kind of past the age where their parents are taking care of their hygiene, but before the age where they actually, you know, start to really care about things like bad breath because maybe they're getting interested in romance and stuff. You know, you kind of give them a bit of a bridge uh, so that they can really protect their new dentition, their their new teeth surfaces um, that are breaking through. But certainly they can also be applied later in life. I mean, my sister actually had some applied two years ago and, and she's 43. Um, um, and so I, you know, they tend to have a pretty long lifespan. Although I, I, I'm not a clinician, so I'm a little bit nervous to be quoted on the shelf the the life of them. But it's certainly, you know, a a, a multi multi year thing. You know, eight eight year kind of thing. Um, and I, I should also say they are. Um, non-invasive. So there's no sensation with having them applied. They they aren't painful. Um, it's it's just basically like you know, kind of wiping the film across a tooth and then using a, a curative agent. So for example, you know, um, light that a special light that is shined on it to um, place them. So they're, they're very um, appealing because they don't 
hurt. Um, it's less scary to children. Multiple members of a dental team are licensed to apply them. Um, so, for example, dental hygienists can apply them, um, you know, without being directly supervised by a dentist. They are extraordinarily low cost and effective. They are recommended by virtually every major stakeholder in oral health equity in the U.S. that you can imagine. So, you know, the U.S. Preventive Task Force finds them to be an extraordinarily highly demonstrated um, and cost-effective method for preventing decay. And I want to just kind of mention here the distinction between in public health, what we think of as primary prevention versus secondary prevention, because primary prevention is um, how we prevent disease in the first place from even happening, right? So like you would put a dental sealant on a tooth that is pristine. It's, you know, it's a it's a tooth that just cut the surface recently, uh, you know, a molar that just cut the surface, or even, you know, an adult tooth that has never had any signs of decay. And so you prevent decay from starting in the first place. And that is what dental sealants are typically known for. But there are also some good studies that they can be effectively used for what we would call secondary prevention. And where and that is secondary prevention is where there has been some disease present. So in this example, it would be some minor, some minor cavities that maybe um either were resolved through treatment or possibly in some instances, the sealant can actually go over that very, very, very nascent decay and prevent it from worsening. And I'm actually very passionate about secondary prevention because I think that in a harm reduction model, it permits us to um, help people cut off early stage disease. And, and for me, we're talking about dental disease, but we could think about this in terms of other, um, a, vari- a whole variety of diseases before they worsen both at the actual original location. So in this, in this regard, let's think about like a molar on the left lower side of our mouth. Not only could a sealant there help um, permit, uh, help uh, help reduce that decay from worsening there and leading to, you know, tremendous pain, the risk of infection, the need for more aggressive treatment techniques, including, unfortunately, you know, having to pull a tooth eventually. It could also, by kind of um, taking care of decay in that one location, it can actually help contribute to the whole mouth's health by preventing the likelihood of then another incident of decay happening elsewhere in the mouth, let's say the top right. So I am passionate about um, dental sealants for both primary and secondary preventive purposes because they've been demonstrated to be successful for that. So thinking about, you know, how they could help with prevention, you know, you mentioned earlier with rural communities, people maybe not having access to fluoridated water. You know, I, I personally, I grew up on well water. I have well water now, so I've never had access to, to fluoridated water. And I would say the inside of my mouth probably reflects that fairly accurately. Um, do sealants make a difference in those cases? If I had had a sealant as, you know, maybe a, a six-year-old could maybe have better oral health now? There's so much, just a tremendous variation at the individual level about the factors that contribute to oral health outcomes. So, you know, I'm speaking from population levels of, of, you know, where we aggregate findings across large numbers of people and then identify risk factors. And so it's impossible to say, you know, you, Beth, could have had, you know, better oral health outcomes with sealants, but certainly the likelihood is yes. And the reason that I say that is that, you know, let's say, so I think you and I are around the same age. And so, um, you know, we grew up in a time, I was actually on fluoridated city water. Um, certainly something like genetics also plays into the likelihood of someone's susceptibility for cavities. And I should also say here that, you know, cavities is the most common disease worldwide. 99% of adults, as estimated by the World Health Organization, have had at least one experience of cavity 
in their lifetime. So I had my first cavity when I was 36 years old. It has been my only cavity, but that means that I'm not someone who has, who cannot consider themselves as having had a cavity. And so that is just so universally true. And there are so many things that play into it, you know, genetics, access to fluoridated water, home hygiene, like toothbrushing, but certainly something like a sealant can, as I was explaining a moment ago, really prevent us from our vulnerability based on things like the kinds and types of food that we eat and then what happens after them. So I was mentioning after we eat, what happens after we eat, excuse me. So I was mentioning a moment ago that you and I are about the same age. And I remember when I was growing up that you know, we um, drank water at bedtime, but there was a lot of just like drinking like juice and milk and pop and, you know, whatever throughout the day um, and and tea and sweet tea. And, um, you know, that was just kind of a, a common thing. So whether or not we'd had access to fluoridated water, we might not have chosen it because we might have been busy drinking something else. Um, when I was growing up, you know, diet drinks were really in vogue. And so the idea was that, you know, drinking, you want to drink something low calorie, but it didn't have to be water. And as we now know, the acids found even in diet drinks cause cavities. And so even if you're avoiding the sugar that contributes to these microorganisms um, digesting the remaining sugar and then you know, generating the acid that causes, you know, um, you know, carious lesions and then eventually cavities and teeth. So do the diet drinks. They also turn out to be terrible endocrine disruptors, which also contributes to obesity. That's a whole other conversation. Um, but, you know, now a lot of the public health messaging for parents is things like, let your kid drink those things at meals. So if, you know, if your child wants, you know, milk at breakfast, you know, pop with lunch, orange juice with dinner, that's fine. But importantly, drink water in between meals because that neutralizes the mouth and that helps it fight cavities. And so, you know, Beth, if we were children now, I think it would be interesting to look into the future and see how those messages, um, and you know, any water is better than no water for sure. Um, but fluoridated water, certainly because it can help to remineralize teeth is, is preferable. Now you recently had a paper published about a school-based dental sealant program in Appalachia. What was the motivation behind that study? Uh, so I have to go back to to dear John Dreisner and and really the invitation that he gave, which was that he gave me basically full access to um, to the Cumberland Plateau's. Uh, uh, um, outreach program, which then led me to be introduced to other school-based outreach programs. And so I wound up kind of connecting with a number of them across the Appalachian region, where I came to understood these school-based dental sealant projects that really are, um, you know, again, they're a highly recommended practice by the CDC, by all school health stakeholders. And so really kind of what initially made me interested in them was access. You know, I was a I was a doctoral student who needed to produce a dissertation. And so this was one of the access points that I got. But it has subsequently led to some very long-term relationships, frankly, as long as yours and mine, in which I've come to understand, um, you know, some of the limitations of these programs, um, as well as to identify some of the opportunities within them. And I thought a, a very interesting aspect of the study was you were not studying the sealants themselves, but rather how parents perceived having the sealants applied at school. So what did the parents think? Yes. So, you know, um, with all of these different technological innovations that we come up with in, in healthcare, they're only as good as if someone accepts them. And that's whether we're talking about vaccines or sealants um, or, you know, you name it. I mean, you name a medical innovation, telehealth, you know, another example. And so, 
I was really interested in parents' understanding of this program. Um, and really, that ranged from their understanding of what a sealant does to what happens if their child, um, you know, is sent home with a paper saying your child is ineligible to receive a sealant because they already have decay that's too advanced for us to place it. And therefore, they need to be seen by a dentist who we can refer to. So what I found was, um, so first of all, one of the things I found, which I think is exceptionally meaningful for, for public health in general, but rural health in particular, really has to do with trust in institutions. You know, there's a lot of rhetoric about how mistrustful um, people, and I think in particular, rural people are often vilified by this analysis. You know, there's this idea that, that rural populations are mistrustful of public institutions. Um, and I found actually quite the opposite in here, which is that there is a lot of trust at the local level. And so one of the reasons that parents enrolled their children, consented their children to participate in the school-based dental sealant program was because they trusted their local elementary schools and they trusted their local health department. These were their neighbors, their friends from childhood, you know, lifelong, you know, their, their fellow church members, lifelong trusted contacts who were running these programs. And so parents said, okay, I might not fully understand how dental sealant work, how dental sealants work, but I believe that my neighbor, my fellow church parishioner, etc., has examined this and believes that it will improve my child's life and their health. And so I'm going to sign my child up for that program. So that is, I think, an important counter narrative uh, to, for us to take home is trust in local institutions is actually higher than it often is assumed to be. At the same time, also kind of within this framework of parents' previous experience, you know, parents had been accustomed to um, dental outreach programs at a time when states actually sent dentists to schools in outreach vans. In fact, if I remember correctly, the very first dental outreach program in Virginia actually occurred. It might have been in Norton. It might have been in Wise, but it was definitely in Lenawesco. And so this was, you know, 70 years ago, you know, a dentist taking out, you know, a dentist hired by the state taking out a vehicle and a dental hygienist and some tools and doing on-site dental care out in community settings. And many of the parents in my study had actually grown up in that model and even some of their older children had. And so they had this memory of not comprehensive dental care, not like restorative dental care, not like aesthetic dental care, but, you know, basic dental care, including extractions, including minor fillings. They had this memory of it being conducted in community settings like school settings. And so there was a, there was a lag of time between when those programs were discontinued and when the dental sealant programs began, but the lag wasn't very long. And so, um, and that all is a product of state level decisions to shift from clinical services to a prevention only framework, which has to do with, you know, all sorts of decisions well above my pay grade, but certainly some of them are fiscal. Some of them are, um, you know, about other approaches to strengthening the dental safety net. And so, you know, and some of them are really about expanding the opportunities for dental hygienists to do semi-autonomous work in which they could do things like deliver sealants in schools without a dentist on site. But, you know, the memory of having a dentist who would relieve parents or their elder children's pain by showing up and fixing a cavity or extracting a tooth, that really stayed in their minds. And frankly, probably they felt it in their bodies. And so when a new dental program came out, parents, many parents, not all, but many, thought they were signing up for a program like that again. And it turns out, unfortunately, that they weren't because the services that were offered were limited to a um, a screening, which is a distinction, a clinical distinction between a screening, which a dental hygienist can do versus an examination, which requires a dentist to conduct it. They were doing, a, the a dental hygienist in the schools were doing a screening. They were providing fluoride varnish. They were providing a, a 
profi or a cleaning, a professional cleaning, and then doing, um, you know, providing sealants where applicable. So for children who either had not had them yet or, um, you know, whose, uh, whose mouths, um, you know, did not already have, um, you know, cavities. And then the dental hygienists were doing referrals for children to be placed in a dental home. And this would be a, pra- a private practice provider um, who would then absorb them as a patient to take care of any dental needs that they had. And this was something that parents, um, many parents in my study, and, and I should say that my my study had a small sample size. So when I say many, you know, we're talking about, you know, like 10 of 14 parents. It was a, it was an interview-based qualitative study. But the fact that, you know, two-thirds of parents fundamentally did not understand that they were then responsible for following up on the referral process and moving their children into a dental home is really concerning, especially for those children who had existing dental needs. So those are some of the findings about the parents' perspectives. And you know, one of the things that I noticed reading your study was that parents very much appreciated sealants, but what they really want is school-based dental care. What does it take to make that happen? I wish I knew the answer to that because Virginia had it and then gave it up. And I find that very hard to, um, to reconcile, to be honest with you. I know that part of it is because, um, it, you know, there have been a lot of challenges in recruiting and retaining dentists to work in rural settings. So even if you provide, even if the state, you know, provides them with, um, you know, a high quality, you know, state-of-the-art dental um, um equipment, you know, to have an office in the health department and then provide them a vehicle to go out. You know, I know that hiring is part of it. I know that, you know, austerity measures in a state budget is part of it. Um, But, you know, in my observation, now 10 years on, the dependence for public needs on the private sector. You know, if we give Medicaid coverage, then children can go get hair in the private sector. It's just inadequate, especially in places where there are not an adequate number of providers in dental health prevention, dental health provider shortage areas um, like rural areas. But this is also true, frankly, in a number of urban areas where there are is a high saturation of the dental market uh, by, by providers, but they are um, focused a lot more on, you know, what I understand to be some of the more intellectual and aesthetically challenging cases that they could do. So, for example, doing a lot of aesthetic dentistry, a lot of restorative work, you know, specializing. Um, you know, dentistry has also turned towards specialization the same way that medicine has. So, we're talking about, you know, specialists working in, you know, oral surgeries and periodontology and all these different specialties. But it leaves this gap in in children's dentistry and and just basic family dentistry that people need for pain relief, for the prevention of infection that, of course, as we know, can, you know, in in rare but important cases can become, you know, you know, blood infections that can lead, unfortunately, to, you know, multisystemic infection and death. And I... um, you know, I wish I could tell you, um, and it and it hurts my heart that I can't. Now, you described yourself as an oral health evangelist, which was a <laughs> fabulous tile. As that, what do you see as the impact of oral health on overall health? Yes, uh, yes, and I sh- I, I want to clarify. I'm both an oral health evangelist generally, but an oral health equity evangelist in particular, because um, you know certainly we are aware that the worst oral health outcomes are among people who already face tremendous challenges in terms of exclusions from care because they are, um, you know, working in jobs that don't provide them dental coverage because they face stigma and discrimination in obtaining care due to, um, you know, systemic racism to, to institutionalized, um, you know, oppression of, 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 a variety of racial and ethnic minorities, whether we're talking about Native American populations or, you know, undocumented immigrants, you know, non-Native English speakers, et cetera. Um, 
you know, but certainly the impact of oral health on overall health is well documented at this point with a couple of really key kind of inflection points. So a moment ago, I mentioned that, um, you know, that the cavities and, and also periodontal disease, so gum disease, um, you know, Having unresolved cavities and periodontal disease makes individuals vulnerable to infections that can become systemic through the bloodstream. You know, if you think about it, if you, if you're someone who like only flosses like three days before you go to your dental provider, you might have had the experience where, you know, you're flossing and you get a little bit of blood in your floss because maybe your gums are like minorly inflamed. You know, generally oral hygiene is pretty good. But if you have advanced untreated gum disease that can, um, you know, have persistent, let's say, abscesses in your mouth, or that can lead to something like the loosening of teeth and the loss of teeth. And we'll leave aside the social stigma associated with that. We'll come back to that in a moment. You know, these create pathways to our entire blood system where infections can be taken up and can contribute to inflammatory comorbidity of other diseases that are inflammatory conditions throughout the entire body. And unfortunately, can also lead to things like abscesses in the brain and death. And again, this is rare, but it is not undocumented. Perhaps the most um, well-documented direct connection between oral health and health outcomes is around um, pregnancy. And, you know, women um, women who are pregnant and have poor oral health um, as a result of a combination of the hormones in the body that can cause some inflammation in the gums, you know, perhaps if they are low income or a racial ethnic minority or, um, you know, have other other barriers to um, insurance coverage, you know, this can be because they don't have insurance coverage, which, uh, you know, as you and Lauren Powell talked about in your equity episode, you know, coverage does not equal um, utilization, but certainly coverage is better, you know, is more of a predictor of utilization than being uncovered. Uh, Insurance coverage, I mean, not just, um, you know, not other kinds of coverage, you know, with pregnancy, um, Poor oral health is a causal factor in preterm labor and low birth weight babies. And those are themselves conditions that have tremendous health concerns for women and babies and also are tremendously expensive to states because they often have to cover then, you know, the NICU costs or the extended hospitalization costs. And so these are some of the physical concerns. Certainly for someone with a, with a chronic condition like diabetes Oral health is essential because it can help with the controlling of blood sugar. And it's really a reciprocal process in which well-managed diabetes can support good oral health and good oral health can support the management of diabetes. And then we can also get into all of the psychosocial health components of oral health. So that can range from something like just the experience of living with pain. You know, I... um. I had my very first uh, um, sinus infection about four years ago. And what I remember about it was the ache in my teeth. And I knew I didn't have any cavities. I knew I didn't have any gum disease. I had just recently been to the dentist, but there was this ache in my dental cavity as a result of a sinus infection that kind of got out of control. And just living through that pain and trying to work and teach my students and parent my then preschooler and, you know, be patient with my mom and, you know, and my partner, it was just, it was, it was terrible. And so the idea that people have to live with that pain every single day, if they have, um, uh, uh, you know, untreated dental problems is is heartbreaking, and also it is a risk for self treatment with opioids. And I cannot stress this enough: how commonly, and I've actually written a chapter in another book about this, how commonly there is an association between people who have 
very limited access or no access to dental care, maybe only once a year at the charity clinic that comes through where they have to choose between extracting this tooth or getting a root canal on that tooth and trying to save it because there's limited services available. And so they self-treat with opioids to manage the pain. And then there you go, right down, you know, into, into risk of addiction. And then also the feelings of shame and social isolation that can result from having, um, oral health problems and the associated, um, kind of sensorial outcomes of that. So whether that's visual, like, you know, evidence of missing a tooth or blackened teeth or broken teeth, along with things like, you know, it's unpleasant to talk about, but, you know, dental infections cause bad breath. And so, you know, it can um, be very stigmatizing for an individual who has dental problems. And, and it can be um, embarrassing and traumatizing um, for them to be out in the world knowing the entire time what they look like, what they might smell like, how it changes their um, their their diction, their speech, um, and so you know there are these varieties of health outcomes that that really we we uh, we have an ethical society would be more compassionate about um, providing treatment, frankly. Mm-hmm. And and certainly the media in Hollywood hasn't done anything to uh, stereotype Appalachians with oral health issues, now have they? No, there has been no help there. And actually, um, uh, right there on your campus, uh, Emily Satterwhite, this is how I became familiar with her work because she's actually done a little bit of work on this as well about how um, the the mouth is used um, to portray horror when specifically focusing the genre of of. Um, what she and others call hillbilly, ho- hillbilly horror, which is the genre of horror films in which um, there are all these um, stereotypes about about rural and in particular Appalachian people and the variety of physical um, and also kind of familial um, characterizations that are that are just so disparaging and um, and so awful. Yeah. If one of our listeners was concerned about the lack of access to dental care in their community, what could they do? What steps could they take? Well, Beth, I have a um, kind of three-step, a kind of triangular approach, in my opinion, about where we need to go. (laughs) And I should say that a lot of this work is going on right now, slowly but surely. And again, I want to shout out um, the Virginia Health Catalyst, uh, which is leading a lot of this work, formerly known as the Virginia Oral uh, health coalition, um, because they are leading a lot of this work, and and uh, and it's work that I also have examined in other settings. I'm I'm doing some work in Oregon now, um, and so really, um, there are, in my opinion, three parts of the same overall strategy. So the overall strategy that I think that your listeners could help support, whether that is to write their legislators or to pay attention to the media or to kind of drop some of these ideas to some of their dental providers or to their public health folks or to their, you know, local FQHC or their rural health center, their migrant health center, really is to... Um, bolster primary and secondary prevention. So dental sealants are an example of a, of a, of a intervention that can be used for primary and secondary prevention by doing two things. And I, so, so part one is bolster primary and secondary prevention with some specific types of, of um, interventions and sealants are one. And then this is kind of part two, they can encourage or facilitate medical dental integration. So for example, we're seeing some opportunities where the medical and dental relationship can be strengthened. And some examples of this include, for example, in Virginia, that pediatricians offices and the, and the variety of providers there are now permitted to apply fluoride varnish to children. And so, you know, previously that was only delivered by dental providers. And so this is one of those like wonky practice law innovations, and it might feel very subtle, but it's actually critically important because now pediatricians can provide fluoride varnish, which again is a, a way to, to strengthen the um, the teeth against decay and even to rebuild teeth surfaces after they've experienced treated decay. So 
pediatricians can deliver this these fluoride varnish. It's like a wipe that kind of goes across teeth, like with a little sponge. And importantly, pediatricians can bill for this service. And again, this is like the like the wonky bureaucratic solution, but it's critically important because not only are pediatricians permitted to provide the service, they can be reimbursed for it, which is essential to make it sustainable. There are other examples of medical dental integration from across the country that should be considered, especially in rural regions. So these might include something like co-locating a dental provider um, in a pediatrician's office or in an emergency um, department or in, um, you know, a lot, increasingly a lot of community health centers have uh, dental providers on site, whether it is part-time, um, whether it is full-time, or they have some kind of a standing relationship where there's a referral. But really, you know, because utilization of medical services is so much stronger than dental services, and this is true um, both for people who have dental insurance coverage and people who don't, you know, but we're just more accustomed, especially with the management of chronic conditions, to uh, go to medical providers or now with telehealth to to go to them by tele, you know, having um, medical providers really kind of give the sign-off and endorsement and sometimes warm handoff and then sometimes actual services themselves to people for their dental needs is an essential component to advancing primary and secondary prevention. Um, another technology that I want to mention that is being utilized in other states, by technology I really mean um, service, that's being utilized in other states for primary and secondary prevention and that is um, amenable to to being utilized by medical and dental providers is something called silver diamine fluoride. It is used around the world um, to manage decay. It is also a topical agent that actually can, um, can resolve early stage dental cavities. Um, and it has applications for both primary and secondary prevention. It is um, very portable, can be used in community settings. In many, in some states, you know, can be used by medical providers. And so that would be like sealants, uh, kind of a an, another um, uh, available service that would be amenable to this primary and secondary prevention and medical dental integration approach. Um, and then the kind of third part within this vision is to really strengthen dental team models across practitioner types. And so in this um, study that we just discussed earlier, uh, uh, my study of dental sealants, you know, um, it is a subtle but important distinction that in Virginia and in other states, dental hygienists with proper training who work in community settings can practice to what's called the top of their license under remote supervision. And what that means is that they can do certain services, screenings, dental sealants. Again, in other states, they can do silver diamine fluoride. They can do, you know, other things. Um, and then there are also some other um, dental practitioner types. So community dental health coordinators, um, dental therapists, there are different practitioner types rolling out across the U.S. that really reflect more of an international an internationally normative model in which there are multiple members of a dental team who are permitted by law and are reimbursable by insurance to provide these primary and secondary prevention strategies semi-autonomously. And so the idea is that if you need an oral surgery, you need a dentist who is trained in oral surgery, or you need an oral surgeon. If you need a invasive procedure, like, um, you know, a root canal or like, you know, the treatment of a really entrenched cavity, you need a dentist. But if you need some basic primary or secondary prevention, including even some minor amount of, you know, going maybe a little bit beneath the gum line or doing some, some minor repairs on some sort of shallow cavities. There is no reason that multiple members of a dental team should not be trained and permitted and reimbursed to deliver those in a semi-autonomous arrangement in which they are being remotely supervised, so some check-ins, whether by tele or by periodic meetings, by dentists. I mean, it's a very similar model to what we can think of in medicine 
as the rise of physician assistants and nurse practitioners and nurse midwives practicing semi-autonomously really to fill those gaps in um, in primary care that have been left as doctors increasingly specialize. And so I really see these things as three things that work together. Um, Virginia has... Um, strengthened opportunities for remote supervision dental hygienists to work in a variety of community settings ranging from, um, you know, facilities where people um, who are, you know, of advanced age live or people who have specific disabilities live. Um, but the um, the implementation of that, um, of those uh, policy changes has been um uh, challenging to to put it plainly, and that's actually a study that I'm working on right now is to understand implementation of the remote supervision dental hygiene protocols beyond the school based sealants programs. So that's my um, that's my kind of three part pitch is um, bolstering secondary and primary pr- primary and secondary prevention approaches by strengthening dental team models across dental practitioner types and also facilitating medical dental integration. Um, and of course, especially in the age of COVID, um, teledentistry cannot not be a part of this. Um, but I, I feel like that's already a bit of a given as, as we're kind of advancing in that direction right now. So I, I wanted to call attention to some other novel ideas. And one last question. If you could do anything what would you do to improve health and healthcare in rural America? Well, <laughs> um, I mean, what I just said is, is is a major part of my vision is is really, uh, you know, strengthening oral health integration and oral health opportunities. Um, you know, the present moment does not escape me, and as um, a passionate anti-racism um, advocate and activist who incorporates that into my scholarship, into my parenting, into um, into my teaching, uh, and, and out in the streets, although I'm probably not supposed to say that <laughs> uh, as a state employee, but I'm off contract because of the summer, um, you know, I would really make um, structural reform uh, around um, racism and and institutional and systemic racism, ranging in everything from how we collect data, how we determine causality in the scholarly literature, how we um, pursue justice for wrongs um, and and for and for harms. Um, you know, it's hard for me not to make that the centerpiece of my answer to you, even though it's not specifically about oral health equity. It is very much related and it is very much in my heart and my actions. And so I will I will um, use that as what I would do. Absolutely. Racism as a public health issue. Let's look, look at that. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you, sir. We appreciate you joining us today. Thank you, Beth. It was delightful. Take care. That's Sarah Raskin and her three-point plan for addressing oral health inequities. If you want to be part of the conversation about rural health, join VRHA to make sure you receive our newsletter with resources, funding announcements, and policy updates. Visit vrhavrha.org and click the membership tab. And now for a message from our trusted friends at the CDC. COVID-19, better known as coronavirus, has spread throughout the world. Information about children with this disease is limited, but they are known to have had mild symptoms. Many organizations are responding accordingly, depending upon their area. It's best to stay home and away from others, especially when sick, and continue following healthy hand wash guidelines, covering mouth and nose and not touching your face or high-touch surfaces. Clean and disinfect high-touch surfaces regularly. And for more information, please visit cdc.gov forward slash COVID-19. Thank you.